Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns was aired on WERU radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. Your hosts are Ron Beard and Liz Graves. Liz is off this month. Hope you'll stay tuned for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. And this afternoon, um, I'm so happy to be talking with my colleague and friend, Esperanza Stancioff. Um, Esperanza is Emeritus Professor at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about her career um, in Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And um, that has mostly been in the field of marine science and engaging citizens in um, thinking about science. Um, we'll get into that. But uh, welcome to Talk of the Towns and um, welcome to you, Esperanza. Thank you, Ron. I'm so happy to be here. So um, at the time of your retirement last spring, what was your role as a faculty member with Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant? Talk a little bit about what that, what that looked like. Sure. Um, I was, uh, my title was a professor of climate change, or climate change lead, actually, for University of Maine Cooperative Extension Maine Sea Grant. And uh, I have been engaged, well, most recently in a lot of the, the networks uh, that I've both created and um, and uh, co-led, and so um, they're still going on after you know some of them ten years or more. Um, so also we've been working one on one with communities as well as as within these networks that we we've, we've developed to bring in more communities working together so that they can um, you know have better success. Mm. Talk a little bit about the connection between uh, Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant, and, and not all of our listeners will be familiar with two, those two organizations. So give a little perspective on that. Well, yes, the, the uh, University of Maine Cooperative Extension has uh, the background of, of USDA, or uh, USDA as, as, the, uh, as the federal agency, and, um, and uh, Sea Grant has... Uh, yeah, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is the background of um, for them, and so uh, Sea Grant is really looks at um, providing support along the coast to uh, any anybody uh, regarding uh, industry um, businesses within industry, um, a lot of uh, local uh, facilitation for processes and networks, creation of networks, and the like. And both of them are, are science-based. In other words, the idea that the university produces research and then takes it out into the community. Yes, right. Um, both of them do that. And, and I have to say they do it very well. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and, and also, I, I think that uh, the coming together of Cooperative Extension Sea Grant has been really uh, an amazing uh, thing for the state, and um, this is—I don't know if it's repeated in other places, but uh, but certainly it's been it's been great in Maine. And that's um, we have our marine extension team, our MAT, uh, as it's known, um, 
and that's a coming together of people who work in Cooperative Extension along the coast as well as as uh, Maine Sea Grant folks who all pretty much work in coastal communities and coast on coastal issues. And that's been a, a really great connection. Um, it's it's brought together the expertise from both organizations, and um, and it's it's thriving. Mm. So um, tell us a little bit about some of the high points in your career um, with both organizations. How long were you um, with Cooperative Extension and, and Sea Grant? Um, 34 years. I've been with uh, the University of Maine Cooperative Extension Sea Grant and um, started out uh, with more of a developing citizen science program statewide. Um, I started, you know, as a um, uh, just a, a professional in water quality and uh, certainly expanded greatly that role uh, in bringing people on board and partnering. And uh, and from there went on to um, uh, a very pivotal uh, sabbatical in 2008. And uh, that launched my career more into looking at climate change adaptation and mitigation and going from there. And, and when you talk about the term citizen science, um, where does that fit in? Um, I remember our colleague Paul Anderson, and when we were working together on the Penobscot Bay um, forums and, and conferences and so on, um, kind of bringing citizens into the realm of science so that science would make a difference in managing, in this case, clam uh, flats, um, was really important and, a, and kind of a breakthrough. Talk a little bit about that role. Sure. Um, well, I was hired as a water quality professional and in 1988 to work within clam-producing areas with local communities and the Department of Marine Resources to help support clam management. And um, I had previously worked on a project with the National Marine, Sur- uh, National, uh, excuse me, National Marine Fishery Service in coastal Georgia uh, on a bycatch and turtle excluder device um, a research project where I was on uh, commercial shrimp boats who had volunteered to help biologists with um, and going out and uh, going out with them daily. This is a juggling of, of needs and federal agency needs and forming small communities along the shore who were concerned about livelihoods and, and the like. So I walked a fine line of being one of the first women on these boats and also the only white woman living in a black neighborhood, which, by the way, was a wonderful experience. Um, and, and when I got to Maine, um, it just was very, uh, very clear that um, it was a different, a different version of where I'd been in, in Georgia, for sure, putting the pieces together. I found uh, clam harvesters and aquaculturists, state agency folks, and, uh, and local uh, community uh, citizens very receptive um, when approached with the ideas that um, to, to put this t- uh, program together. It was a step-by-step process, and, um, and we, uh, you know, it was sometimes challenging, but it was extremely successful because um, uh, DEP funded our first uh, program in the Damariscotta, which had experienced um, uh, some pollution and closure of the clam flats for the first time in their history. So that sort of launched the, the beginning and uh, I could go on for the, from there. <laughs> well, I mean, in other words, people were um, looking at their livelihoods, um, and the community was looking at a loss of income, and they're saying, what do we do about this closure? Right, exactly. And um, so we started looking at where the missing pieces were, as you say, and, um, and we, we brought together 
teams of people uh, from all these different backgrounds and expertise and started to figure out what was missing, and that was taking samples, uh, mm-hmm. looking for uh, the, the, the locations where the pollution was coming from, or, or pollution source tracking, as, as we called it. And uh, so we got, um, you know, volunteers were taking their boats out with other volunteers to take the samples, and uh, it was a, a huge endeavor. We ended up, um, you know, having, uh, creating labs to run these samples uh, in high schools. We had 10 high schools up and down the coast, and uh, many of those students have come back to me and said, this was an amazing thing, you know, in my life. And I've gone on to do X, Y, Z. So, uh, and at the time, um, we were able to identify some sources and then work with uh, uh, DMR as well as the local code enforcement officers uh, and local uh, community members to take care of the, the pollution sources. And in many cases, we were able to open up clam flats. It took us eight years in the St. George River, but we were able to open up and provide a hundred, which would provide 126 digger jobs or clam harvesting mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about some of the volunteers. I mean, you don't have to name them, but you know the kinds of people that you remember in those early days. What what motivated them to get involved in this kind of uh, community effort? Oh yeah. Oh, we had. Uh, I've had people that I've seen over the last couple of years in different parts of the state at certain events come up to me and say, "I was a water quality volunteer back in you know uh, 1996 or whatever it was," and um, and it was pre 1989 actually, and um, and they were very excited that they were doing other things that had sort of launched them into a, a volunteer role, um, and. Some of the people were uh, executives, if you will, and some were just, um, you know, not not working. Uh, maybe uh, older folks um, that were just interested, very interested in in, in the work and, and learning about the science and uh, and you know just. Uh, providing the support mm. to their community. Well, everybody wants to know about their backyard. And, um, you know, we have programs that help gardeners um, do a better job in their mm-hmm. gardens. And mm-hmm. I suppose in identifying tree species, you were helping them understand a marine environment, which for some people is just, you know, one kind of step removed from their daily life. Right. Um, and I think that um, I think that was a big thing. And they were also really engaged in educating others in their community, which I think was one of the greatest outcomes. Um, you know, and they were seeing successes, um, and they were very thrilled at, at the learning opportunity and giving back. So, um, and I think that the students were, uh, were extremely excited, and some of them we hired during the summer through uh, community funds. Uh, to run the lab and uh, and then other volunteers to take the students out um, to collect the samples. So that was a pretty successful um, effort. And I suppose that once um, someone learns about their backyard environment and they see some threats, then they become advocates for that environment. And that's where the citizen standpoint comes in. They can advocate for policies that do a better job of protecting our environment. Right, and I think there were several groups that were formed that are still in, in uh, service today. Um, 
different water quality groups that are you know now called friends of or or, or other names for them um, but they have done a lot more than what they started doing uh, back in that day. Um, they're still doing some, some of them are engaged in ocean acidification work and providing samples for that, for the Darling Marine Center, for example. Um, so they're still doing the work, and it's just morphed into whatever is most important for the time. Mm. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and we're talking with uh, Esperanza Stancioff, Emeritus Professor. University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. Um, Esperanza, you mentioned um, your work in Georgia and here in Maine. Um, where did you get your um, interest and love of the ocean? Mm. Well, that's a long story, Ron. <laughs> um, uh, when I was a, a child growing up in uh, the plains of Texas, um, the only place we really ever got to for, for vacation was Padre Island. And uh, that's where I first fell in love with the ocean uh, and the beach. And uh, then when I left Texas, I went out to go to school and um, ended up um, taking a trip from Flagstaff, Arizona, to where I was going to school, to uh, Malibu Beach. This is eons ago. I was 18 um, or 17, and um, I fell in love with the Pacific Ocean, and I packed up my old car, and I drove out to San Diego and ended up... Um, you know, working there, going back to school there for in a marine science school, and um, and started sailing, mm-hmm. and uh, sailed down the coast of Mexico or to Hawaiian Islands on a little twenty-four foot boat, <laughs> um, and on from there mm-hmm. for fifteen years. I was uh, was sailing mm-hmm. um, in the Pacific and then in the Atlantic, and uh, in many storms and and that. And so I wanted to get back to to uh, that work because I was doing research in, in Cote d'Ivoire and in, in West Africa and, uh, and other places um, around the globe. And, uh, and I was really interested in coming home and um, met someone who brought me to Maine. And I'm, yeah, here I am. So this space that you've been working in, it's kind of a space between the world of science and scientific research and the university and the community, the people who are making a living along the coast or who um, have their homes um, in a marine, uh, next to a marine environment. Uh, how important is this space? Um, in, as you think about your career, um, what stands out in terms of the importance of this space between science and the community? Um, I think it's the only thing that works completely. Um, for example, the work that we're doing now is really based in community. Um, of course, we're bringing together networks of, of people who are community volunteers and community people who are really interested in learning more. The state agencies, scientists, um, bringing uh, all of those people together to try to um, figure out how are we going to tackle uh, the adaptation of the impacts of climate change. And that's been, uh, a, you know, and even before, you know, doing the water quality work, it, it just, there's just not enough people in the state, uh, state agencies to do this work. And, um, and there are able and, you know, brilliant scientists even in the communities uh, that we're working in. And so, um, you know, just bringing people together like that has been very successful in in moving the needle forward. Mm. So what were some of the things that you um, first kind of noticed um, about 
a changing climate that got you kind mm. of excited and, and said, oh, this is a place where I want to work. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was, I, I, as I said earlier, I had a, a pivotal sabbatical in 2008, and it was a year long. And one of the first things I did was I won an award for a fellowship with World Wildlife Fund to go out to San Francisco for a climate camp for a week. And um, so it was, it was life-changing for me. I had, was in a small group. Uh, they put us in different groups, you know, to work together on issues and, um, and come up with some answers to, to po- them, them posing, uh, you know, different scenarios to us. And uh, I was working with uh, uh, people from Bang- Bangladesh, and their story was that already then, in 2008, they had um, climate refugees that were leaving Bangladesh because the uh, mangrove, uh, mangrove areas along the coast were being flooded based on um, extreme precipitation as well as mostly because of sea level rise. And uh, so 20,000 people had already migrated to India, and India at the same time was building a wall to keep them out. So um, here we are. <laughs> um, and I was I was very motivated by uh, by what was already happening and what I could see through their eyes. And and you probably were looking at headlines at that time too, in, in terms of what science was saying. And and um, any thoughts about um, where we went wrong in terms of using science to guide ourselves? Is you know, climate uh, climate change issues seem to be controversial. Any idea why that happened? Um, I I think that um, that's a hard hard yeah. question, and I, I think that um, we didn't we weren't very inclusive, we weren't very um, open ended about uh, the information, nor were we very good at explaining um, and providing um, you know data that was was usable and understandable to the local level. Mm. And these. Bangladeshis that you encountered, they were already already using their common sense and saying, we've got to make a change. We've got to leave. Exactly. And I think that's happened here. Um, and I think Maine is sort of in the forefront um, right now for, for that, that work. I think it took a while for any community to really address, um, because it's difficult. I mean, it is one of the most complex problems. Well, it is the most complex problem of our time, mm. and uh, there's a lot uh, going on, um, and it's hard to know how and where to plug in, and that's where that those networks come in that we've been able to develop and uh, and provide to you know anyone who's interested. And one of the things that I recall is that um, again, you 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 got people to observe what was going on in their backyards. Um, I think you call it signs of the seasons. Uh, yes, and it's still going after after eleven years. Uh, Beth Vissen and I created uh, developed this program called Signs of the Seasons, and it's there's a a, a marine component and then a, a terrestrial uh, component. Uh, Twenty two indicator species that people can look at uh, in their backyards, schoolyards, um, wherever they have availability. Um, and what we found is that. Uh, from the program, people are also getting uh, more engaged at the local level. Um, they're um, they're looking at ways to give back. Uh, again, it's the whole 
citizen science, and I should be saying community science, Ron, because um, it's really not just citizens, and that's a, a misnomer now. But um, anyway, the community science is, is bringing people together to, to look at other issues and try to, um, you know, try to help in that way. Um, just take a, um, a marine species and a terrestrial species that, you know, people are looking at. Uh, well, the one that's the marine species, and it's called coastal SOS, um, is the uh, Ascophyllum nodosum, which is our very ubiquitous um, seaweed, um, rockweed along the coast, and it's the, the most um, uh, targeted for harvesting along the coast, and it's, uh, it's a foundational species. It's really important for a haul-out for seals, um, for food, for invertebrates, and so forth. It's been, um, it's just a really important species on our coast. And um, so we, we are looking at the life cycle of, of this uh, plant um, and marine plant and, uh, uh, and providing that, those data to, to different researchers. Jesse Mullen has been really important in, in providing support uh, to the project and, um, and she utilizes the data as well as other, other scientists. Um, and our, our volunteers have been able to also work on other research projects having to do with Ascophyllum nodosum and uh, get that experience. And, you know, it's been really uh, wonderful for them to, to be a part of that. And what specifically might you be asking them to observe or to measure? Um, well, uh, they're measuring the growth of, of each plant that they're looking at, and they're doing a transect of 10, essentially 10 plants, and they're going back to the same location every time. Um, so they're looking at the growth and, um, and how the growth rate between uh, years, amongst the years, and, uh, you know, and how old they are. They're aging the plant. And then they're looking at the reproductive cycle. So, um, you know, when a, um, um, you know, when it's, when it's changing and uh, looking at the, the different stages. Can you take us through something on the terrestrial side as well? Sure. Um, so loons is, is one of the, our species. Uh, we have amphibians, we have some birds, and then we have a lot of, a lot of plants. Um, and uh, so loons are um, the reason we, we, we partnered with um, Maine Audubon on the loon project. And um, so we were, we were actually providing training for the different lakes regions uh, on this. And the loon... Um, you know when they when they're nesting, um, they uh, it's so that's one of the life life cycle phases uh, or phenophases we call it. Phenology means to you know the first appearance uh, in Latin. So um, and then um, and then when they're uh, when they're uh, when they're nesting, when they're building their nests, when they're um, producing offspring, that type of thing, and um, so. What Audubon was finding is that um, the the chicks were not surviving, um, and so that's something that we partnered together to see, you know, what if it might be part of their phenology or something within that that those cycles. And so we were able to get um, folks involved that that live or or summer uh, along our lakes. Mm-hmm. And was there any? Um data that indicated what was happening so that those loon chicks um, didn't survive? Or are there any theories that you're trying to test out? 
Well, um, we uh, COVID hit, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, we sort of uh, slowed down our ability to to continue that work. Um, though some lakes found that um, you know it was different things. You know, it could have been um, some of the 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 um, boats in the region. You know that were. Um, you know, creating a wake that 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 upset the nest. Um, yeah, that was one of one of the major findings. But yeah, we're not we're not really clear about it yet. And about Ascophyllum, what were there were any changes that the research kind of began to reveal in terms of its health as a as a species? Well, so far, I mean, it's it it doesn't look dire or or even a problem but um you know we we've been doing we've been monitoring that less uh for less time than we have the terrestrial species so um they are i think we were 2014 or 15 when we started doing that so it's it requires um it's going to require a little bit more time and what's the um scientists will use the term baseline and so i assume that some of this work is helping people understand what exists so that years from now we can go back and say, oh, in 2022 or 2014, this is what things were like. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, We're hoping that that these data, and you know, there have been many, many types of monitoring that has gone on, and we actually, they found... um, at, and C, at COA, they found a, a, a cache of, of data based on the Harvard boys that had been there in, ah, I'm going to forget. The, the 1800s, 1800s. And, and that's you're referring right. to our colleague Catherine Schmidt, right. um, who did that research. And again, those were Harvard students coming to Mount Desert Island in roughly 18-something, 1896, somewhere in that era, and they were studying what they found. Right, right, and that was very exciting for um, uh, Caitlin McKenzie Donahue, Donahue McKenzie. Anyway, she's a researcher, and ha- was working, um, uh, has been working on phenology for a long, long time, and that was uh, part of her research. And um, can send out that to anybody who's interested. <laughs> Well, uh, take us back a little bit to the Penobscot Bay Conference that you and I both um, worked on. What do you remember that was um, kind of exciting and and kind of intriguing about that process of bringing um, citizens, scientists, and state and local policymakers together to think about the the future and the and the health of Penobscot Bay? What do you remember about that? I remember it being a really thrilling and uh, and very. Uh, uh, wonderful experience. I would start with talking about the Penobscot Bay Network mm-hmm. because that was sort of the, the kickoff for bringing uh, certain expertise together, I think, uh, you being definitely a big player in that, Ron, as well as Paul Anderson, and uh, I'm sure that I'm forgetting a lot of people, Kathleen but Layden. Kathleen Layden, of course, right. of course, and, uh, and others. Um, and we were able to start to piece together what this might look like. We knew something about Penobscot Bay um, and that there was um, kind of a east side of the bay and a west side of the bay. They weren't always talking together. So the network brought those two sides of the bay together. And the other piece was that um, as we engaged scientists, they began to say, well, this is what we don't know. 
This right. is the missing research, and you mentioned that grant. That would have, yeah. if we had been the, successful yeah. in getting that grant, um, that would have begun to fill in those pieces. Right. As it turns out, other ways to get money to do that research has gone on, and we know a lot more about right. Penobscot Bay than we did when we started. Right, um, and so that was the EPA National Estuary Program that I was referring to, and uh, we didn't get it. New Hampshire did, but you know, it really, it really coalesced a lot mm-hmm. and uh, and we learned a lot more than we would have had we not done that um, and also as you say we, we you know we were able to I think a lot of groups sub regional groups formed as a result trails were built so, so people could enjoy uh, Penobscot Bay and the, and the whole watershed and uh, you know we've gone on to have you know all these conferences as you said that were just really um, very well attended by people far beyond the region uh, to see what we were doing. And I think that um, the whole um, feeling was that, you know, we can do this. We can we can actually make a difference in, in this region. So that was pretty exciting. And so what, what do you imagine you took forward as you began to, to morph your career into client uh, climate work. Um, what, what about that um, Penobscot Bay experience or um, the community science piece? What have you taken forward um, into the into the climate work? Um, I think that uh, the the whole idea that it you know it the cliche it takes a village <laughs> um, and bringing together the people who um, first of all that really care mm-hmm. and uh, and that want to be a part of it and then uh, it's sort of uh, cycles out from there. And I think, um, you know, creating, uh, establishing networks that people can plug into and, um, and just, uh, you know, doing our homework um, and having a way to do that and bringing together, you know, the state agencies along with, um, along with uh, the university researchers and other research organizations um, and along with the community um, is essential. It can't be done without that whole mm. that whole network. Mm. Um, talk about some of the other projects. I know that uh, in the Ellsworth area, um, for instance, um, your networks helped that community think about, oh, what's happening with our, our our uh, culverts and what's happening with mm-hmm. um, so how do we get ready for the ch- climate change that we're already beginning to see happen? Yeah, we were really successful with NOAA grants um, back in the day and, 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 and more recently too. But um, And that was a really wonderful project where Shalene Jane from the University Engineering um, and a student um, uh, uh, Alex Gray came together. Uh, we had a th- you know the three of us were were really working uh, very hard on that project, and uh, we found a um, a planner in um, in Ellsworth. That Ellsworth. was Michelle Gagnon. Michelle, yes, thank you, Michelle Gagnon, and um, and she was really eager to work with us. It was such a great foursome, and uh, unfortunately, the select board wasn't as Excited, you know, we're still in the day where uh, where people weren't quite quite understanding of of the impacts of our changing climate, and that they were experiencing it as well. And some of the work that we did was really exciting in that we were able to um, work with uh, uh, work with the with the municipality to look at areas which they had never done. And they'd never really been talking. The municipal officials had never really been talking together. But we found uh, areas that if a culvert were to uh, fail, 
than uh, on a road where there's a lot of people beyond that. There would be no access to any services. And that was a big aha for the, for the, for the city. And um, so we went from there and we, you know, we held meetings and, um, and we got, you know, people in a little bit engaged and, um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was really great. We were able to, to figure out some ways, some, some, uh, ways to do GIS, to, to map, you know, their critical areas and look at maintenance schedules. And we replicated that in different communities with a more, um, uh, without the, the use of GIS, which they didn't have. And mm-hmm. that's a huge thing within this work is the low capacity that, that small communities along the coast have. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Esperanza Stancioff. Esperanza's recently retired from the University of Maine and both Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And I'm talking with her to ask her about re- reflecting on her career. She's, she's um, had a, a, a valuable career um, doing marine science um, and now um, most recently focused on, on climate adaptation, adaptation to the climate change that's, that's coming. Are there other examples of, of some of the climate network? Um, you mentioned um, you know, th- things that are, that are um, kind of even now emerging. Sure. Um, I think that um, our climate change adaptation providers network, uh, which we established 10 years ago, we started with like 10 people around the table with Kathleen Layden and I leading this. And, um, and then it, it just, it grew. We have 80 participants now. Um, we have held, you know, it, it, two uh, major meetings per year uh, for during this time, bringing in, uh, you know, different topic areas for, uh, and this is the, 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 um, the members are anyone who works um, in Maine on climate issues um, and um, and that's a pretty good group of people. Um, a lot of expertise there, and we've branched off into different groups to uh, provide, get funding, and provide support to different subregions along the coast, and uh, and also to uh, provide uh, manuals, if you will, and different types of of uh, educational materials. And can you be more specific about some of the adaptations that communities are beginning to think about? And, and the other thing is, too, that we've gone beyond um, trying to, um, in some ways, fight climate change or to prevent it to saying, it's coming, we have to adapt. And, and that's what's been the focus of this particular network. Right. Um, although I have to say that working in communities one-on-one, the first thing typically that they want to do is to look at solar um, or or even wind, but mostly solar. Um, And the reason for that is it's a a win-win. It's a, you know, they can actually not be out money for it. They're going to be, you know, regenerating uh, funds through, through the development of that. And um, so it's, it's a, it's a no brainer really for them. And they're get pretty excited. And that brings more people to the table and more interest in the community. Um, And adaptation is, it's, it's harder. It's a slog. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated. And, um, and when the capacity is low for planning and assessing and then going for implementation grants, um, it becomes uh, very difficult, and um, that's what, you know, CCAP, the the network I just described, um, that's what we're about to, and um, so 
some of the some of the projects that that we've been helping with are you know looking at sea level rise for example and uh, looking at areas be it culverts or uh, working waterfront infrastructure or um, you know other stormwater infrastructure it's a huge need in pretty much every community even you know beyond coastal um, so trying to assess you know what what's going on um, how do we how do we make this happen? How do we get this funding? Um, do we have the capacity to actually write the grant? Do, can we bring together, you know, uh, community members that have that expertise? And um, and how do we do this assessment? Well, there are tools, and that's something that our uh, collaborating toward, toward climate solutions, which was funded uh, by both Sea Grant and the George Mitchell Center from the University um, Sustainable uh, of Sustainable Solutions. Um, and we were able to uh, to look at uh, both in in Passamaquoddy Bay as well as in Western Penobscot Bay to bring communities together to to work on this and um, and and bring in um, some tools to try to help them uh, uh, make some assessments of what uh, they should be working on first and uh, and what's available for funding. And bringing in, you know, people like Pete Slavinsky from Maine Geological Survey to assist with, um, you know, doing a, a, a talk for them and, and, and talking, you know, with the different communities and then all of them together. So he's been really uh, a wonderful guru in the state. <laughs> so I, I can imagine that a community um, begins to hear from citizens. Maybe they're reading the headlines and they're saying, Oh, climate change is coming. We better think about it. What it sounds like you're saying is that they need to do some kind of assessment to find out what's most important. Right. Oh, yeah. What comes first? Exactly. And and what are the, all of the things in the different um, departments, municipal departments that need to be considered in doing so? Um, so what are you know what are the um, how are the culverts? I mean, what's what's going on with that? And then. You know what's happening with with certain areas um, for roads that are being washed out, and you know it, it just goes on and on. And, and um, so, first getting their list together and figuring out um, are they doing anything in that in that regard? Yes or no? And uh, if no, what's a timeline for that? And who needs to know um, the detail? And how can we reach out? And who can we reach out to? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it's all just a you know, a process. Mm-hmm. So um, a community um, looks to this network that you've described. What do you call it again? Uh, the Climate Change Adaptation Providers Network right. or the CTCS. Yeah, no, yeah. The, the Providers Network. Mm-hmm. And and how would they um, find out more, I guess, is, is the question. Who would they contact? Is there, is there a state agency that is providing a leadership or a, a contact information for that network to, to provide additional support to an individual community? Well, there are uh, quite a few sub um, networks um, that are happening in, as a result of, well, just as a result of you know their planning agencies that are that are located along the coast, and then um, so those are the, the that's kind of the first uh, first place I would. As so a, these are regional agency or regional, regional gatherings, planning, yes. Okay. Regional planning agencies, yeah. right. um, and then um, and they have further uh, uh, come together recently for the Maine Climate Council's um, new funding uh, from federal funding 
um, called the, the uh, Commun Community Resilience Partnership, and that will provide funding to communities who want to do some of this work. Uh, there are some, you know, some steps that they need to take, and that's all at the MainClimateCouncil.com, I think, um, website. It's very easy to find, great. and uh, there's a lot of information there. It's great. One of the things that you've been successful in more than most other faculty, it seems to me, in cooperative agencies, is finding sources of money to help with these kinds of projects. Um, and I can imagine that there are folks listening who say, how does that happen? How do you write a good grant? Um, you've been doing that for all of your career. Um, are there some kind of general lessons that you you could pass on as to what makes a good grant writing process for, for an individual or a community or, or a group? Partnering. Partnering is first. Um, I think that finding people that are experts within uh, what you're trying to do and having them on board mm -hmm. to begin with is really uh, super important, um, as well as having you know, a number of people with eyes on the, the writing um, to be able to, it's, it's, it's really a, a team effort. And, uh, and I think all of the grants that we've been successful in were because we knew our topic area. Maybe we've been successful in sort of like things or, you know, similar things or, uh, or we knew of things that we could point to that were, we were going to incorporate. So it's, it's, it's knowing your audience, too. Uh, knowing you know what what they're really looking for, and actually reaching out to those folks because people think, oh, you know, they're they're uh, a NOAA um, bureaucrat, you know, bureaucrat right. and you know, but but it's that's not always the case, and sometimes there are actual meetings that they will hold for people to plug into um, and and learn more. So I guess all of those things, and mm -hmm. and probably others. Mm -hmm. Um, is there any particular aspect of, of that that um, that uh, citizens get involved in? I mean, you, you've approached it as a as a kind of a, um, a faculty member, a professional in that regard. What can citizens do around that question of helping to write a grant or to produce the information that goes into a grant application? Oh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of community members that have expertise that you can definitely. That they, they can provide to to this process, as well as you know, if they're engaged in something similar or they're a leader in their community, then they can write us a letter of support, um, or they can garner those types of letters of support where where ap appropriate, um, and uh, um, and also, you know, they can reach out to other people. It can be you know a, a network of of you know. Determining what ne what the needs are, and then and then divvying that up. Mm. One of the hallmarks of your career, it seems to me, was always encouraging the next generation. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about um, why you think that's important, and maybe talk a little bit about how you did that work, that mm -hmm. kind of encouraging of of young professionals. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I could start with um, just when uh, we started the water quality program, and uh, and we didn't have any labs set up. To, to, to run all these samples in all these different communities. And so um, I started talking to my teacher friends and set, you know, and showed them the process. And, you know, it is a process. It's a, it's a, a lab process for membrane filtration. And, um, and, you know, so they were eager to identify certain students that could do that and then identify other students who could take samples 
for, um, you know, along with uh, an adult volunteer um, who would be driving them to the sites. Um, so in high schools, we were able to set up those 10 labs, um, get those funded, and then, um, and then I trained all of the, the, the students, and some of them actually got a stipend during the summer for running the labs um, when, you know, school was not in session. So that was really special. Um, and then from there, um, in the climate work, um, I mean, there are, there, there are so many high school and um, undergraduate and graduate um, students who are working on these problems and very eager to learn more. So it's, um, you know, I've, I've been contacted by several of them and, and assisted in any way I could and, you know, finding other people that they could work with um, and so forth. And many of them have gone on to have careers, um, which has been really exciting. And uh, uh, so that's that's been encouraging. Uh, but it's I think it's it's one of the best things that I've I've ever done in my career. Um and the most pleasurable um, and rewarding, yeah. And those folks stay in touch, don't they? Oh, yes, yes, uh, they certainly do. And uh, some of them are still, one of them is, both of them, two of them are still working with Maine Sea Grant and the university, and that's really a fantastic because I get to still work with them. <laughs> um, you've been um, centered in this place, and we're speaking in your um, wonderful kitchen in, in Camden. Um, what's the importance of place um, to you and, and mm-hmm. to do, doing this kind of work? Um, well, um, after bopping around the world on sailboats, delivering boats, doing research in different parts of the world, um, or just jobs in different parts of the world, um, coming to Maine was uh, an eye-opener for me. It's really the first time I've had um, the, the, the feeling and, and uh, assisted in the development of community. And it's been, like, for me, the highlight of my career as well as where I live. And um, I feel very, very fortunate, I mean, just extremely fortunate to have found Maine and my home, you know, of 36 years. And so, um, yeah, I mean, community is, I I can't imagine doing it alone anymore, you know, so. Are there particular um, projects kind of outside of your career that you can think of that that you got involved in um, that that helped build community? Oh, yes. Um, Well, Restorative Justice Project um, is uh, in, which is centered in Belfast, uh, who helps um, youth and adults uh, who have been struggling and who need support. Um, and, you know, there's a training program, wonderful training programs that, you know, that you go through to be able to, to be a mentor. And I was doing that for a couple of years and will be doing that again, most likely, um, because it's very rewarding and they're wonderful people to work with, um, both RJP as well as the people you're you're mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, other types of community things, um, certainly the Stewardship Education Alliance, which is a, a Camden-based um, group who uh, support teachers in the in the area, both in Rockport and Camden, and uh, branching out from there, um, and putting on festivals just with uh, a lot of. You know, for example, Cooperative Extension and Maine Sea Grant folks displaying and talking to the public about these issues um, and and the good work that's going on. Um, 
and then uh, I'm also on the board of um, the watershed school, and uh, and we'll be doing some other things too. Not not yet solidified, uh, but yeah. Um, uh, talk a little bit about what you learned about um, you know thinking that there may be um, younger professionals listening to the show. Um, talk a little bit about how you found a, a good balance between some of that community work mm-hmm. and the very full professional career that you had. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, I mean, um, honestly, I I probably wasn't great at it, um, and at times because you know when you when you feel like something needs to be done, you know you can <laughs> you can take more time and and maybe it's going to fall apart or you can just do it. And so um, I think the balance though is. Um, finding something that you love right um and 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 making sure you fit that into your life um and i my dad constantly told me when i was growing up do what you love because it's a huge part of your life and it's probably the most important part and uh i would add to that um also include people that you really enjoy working with and become your friends those colleagues uh because it's infinitely more uh, more pleasurable as well as you get a lot more done. <laughs> I think that goes for both of us. Um, Esperanza, talk a little bit about uh, the process of thinking about retirement. When did you kind of feel that it was right to, to retire? And um, what might retirement look like for you? If, and again, you're, you're probably early into that, that thinking, but talk a little bit about that. Because again, I think there are listeners out there who are saying, hmm, I've put 30, 35 years into my career. Maybe it's time for me to do something different. What was the process like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I kept seeing that uh, while I was really still fully engaged and 100%, you know, working my m- m- beyond my hours, um, uh, that there were people who would be taking my place, hopefully, and, um, and that the work would go on. And I felt pretty confident that that was going to happen. Um, through Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension, and um, and so, uh, you know, the next generation. I'm really concerned about the next generation um, having their role and their place, and so that was the the major driving force for me. And also, so that was that yeah, was so. a little bit like um, kind of recognizing that the work would go on, and was it a, a kind of choosing to step back so other people could step in? Absolutely, absolutely, and um, and having been. You know, uh, having many, many students reach out to me over the last, you know, several years, um, I I knew their situation, and you know, not that me retiring is going to create a position for them, but certainly I think that that was in the back of my mind for sure. So, as you think about retirement, um, what does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to keep hiking. I'm going to get up in the morning and not uh, open my computer at 7 a.m. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm going to write. I have a desire and have had for years, and I have no more excuses now. Uh, and uh, and I want to keep working on things like Signs of the Seasons, you know, um, where uh, appropriate, and uh, and some other projects. If we get funded by NOAA, uh, there's a project in Passamaquoddy, Bay that um, that uh, would be if it gets funded, then I will uh, volunteer my my time to to help with that. Mm. So it sounds like um, as you th- uh, think about retirement, it it's, it's still looking and and to be involved, 
but to give yourself a little bit more time mm -hmm. to hike or to write. Exactly. Yeah, I have lots that I want to do. <laughs> and and say a little bit more about the writing part. What what, what would you like to be writing? Well, um, yeah, I think that first of all, I I just like to document for for myself and my family, um, my my life, mm -hmm. um, and you know, not to publish or anything, but um, I just feel like I need to get it out. I think I need to get it down on paper. So. So, use this opportunity. We have a few more minutes left. What would you want um, your family or other people who have known you, what would you like them to know about your life and your career? Oh, that's a hard one, Ron. Um, I, I guess I would like to, to them to know um, how, what a long way um, I've come, you know, and, um, and the, the growing up in Texas, which was not easy at that time you know uh girls and women were not not very treasured at that at that moment um in time and um so leaving leaving texas and really seeing the world was uh was really an amazing uh time of my life and i wouldn't trade it for anything it was hard i didn't have any money uh, <laughs> my parents weren't wealthy, <laughs> and uh, and so just finding my way was it was both encouraging, thrilling, and gave me a lot of determination. Mm -hmm. And you've had a full family life. Um, what would you want others to know about that aspect of your your life? Oh well, I mean, I have the best family in the world. Um, uh, both my uh, my own family from Texas um, and my Stanshaw family here in Maine and beyond and never par other parts of the world. They're incredible. We have a lot of music in, in the family and a lot of gatherings and um, just very, very congenial uh, group of people. And my own little family is my two children and my husband are you know, um, really, we we also have a lot of fun, and it's um, it's great to watch them grow up and to become the adults that they have. Um, so, you know, it's it's the family is everything. And uh, kind of last question: um, You think about someone starting out in a career in the science, in in the world of research, but also in the in the community. Any particular um, things that you'd want them to think about? Um, be open. Be open to uh, to learning from from a lot of different people. Um, you know, be curious. Be curious about other people's lives and as well as um, their knowledge. But um, you know, and and uh, create close partnerships and colleague friends. I call them. Um, and uh, and uh, and don't get discouraged. Great. Well, I think you'd also make a good graduation speaker from what we've just said. So thank you. Esperanza, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And please tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle at University of Maine Sea Grant from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to my 
guest, also my friend and my dear colleague, Esperanza Stancioff, Emeritus Professor of University of Maine, Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. Thanks to our underwriters. Uh, thanks to Amy Brown and, and Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns. This is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon. Good afternoon.